Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and this week, uh, just another sampling of serial killers. As you, you, this way you listen to the show, because you like stuff like this. So, um, three stories this week, um, probably uh, some, I, I don't know, I would, I would not say that these are the most well-known uh, serial killers, but probably like mid-tier, all right? Not like super obscure, but like, you know... If you did some basic internet searches, you'd come across these names. Um, but we're looking at the stories of Keith Hunter Jesperson, Tommy Lynn Sells, and our first story after I hit the fancy button is of Carl Panzer. Carl Panzerum was one of five kids born to a Prussian immigrant family in East Grand Forks, Minnesota uh, in 1892. And pretty much like right out of the bat, right out of the gate, like he was a terrible kid. Like he constantly lied. He stole pretty much anything he could get his hands on. Um, at age seven, he was actually sent to a juvenile court on a drunk and disorderly charge. At age seven, drunk, a little drunk kid. That's insane to me. Um, In 1903, his parents finally had enough of him and sent him to the Minnesota State uh, Training School. And while he was there, as what tends to happen at these sorts of reform schools, uh, Carl was continuously beaten and raped and tortured by the staff members at the school uh, inside what was known as the Painting House, which was this nickname for this disciplinary house where children would emerge, uh, quote unquote, painted with bruises and covered in blood. So, I mean, like, that's pretty creative pretty creative nickname for just a terrible place. Um, Carl hated this school so much that he vowed to burn it down. And that's exactly what he did on July 7th, 1905. He like true to his word. Um, even if it is a terrible word, um, after burning the school down, Carl then just returned home because like, where else was he going to go and went back to his life of theft and alcoholism. So at age 14, he then decided to run away from home, figuring life uh, on the rails as a hobo would be better than, I don't know, being at home. Um, At one point, however, he was gang raped by a group of hobos in a train car. So like this kid's life is on one hand insane. And on the other hand, it's awful because it's like terrible kid, drunk seven-year-old preteen for you know like a drunk first grader or a drunk second grader like i can't even imagine but then he goes to this reform school and he's beaten and raped but then he's like i'm gonna burn this school down and then he does it a 13 year old burning down an entire school and then at 14 he's like "Uh," because his voice is cracking because puberty i'm gonna go run away from home and be a hobo. And then he's just riding the rails across the great plains. And then a gang of hobos in a train car gang rapes him. It's just, it's insane. Um, 
The following year, when he's uh, age 15, he decided to join the army. I don't know how he managed that. Um, but he was quickly convicted of larceny and sent to Fort Leavenworth for two years. Uh, and while he was in Leavenworth, according to Carl, anything that was good that was left in him was destroyed. Which, I don't know, seems like a strange thing to say. Because it didn't seem like there was a lot of good in him to begin with. But... After his release and discharge from the army, Carl went back to his life of crime, uh, spent time in and out of various prisons all across the country from California to Connecticut, just riding the rails, making a crime and then getting caught for it and going to prison. Um, after a 10 year crime spree that included things like theft and arson and assault, uh, Carl started to get bored with that and decided to do some do something a little bit different. Uh, in August of 1920, Carl broke into the home of former president William Howard Taft and stole jewelry, bonds, and a handgun. And this wasn't like just some random thing, right? Carl had actually blamed president Taft for his imprisonment at Leavenworth because like Taft had actually approved the sentence. And he decided that while he was in prison, he was going to get revenge in any way he could. And so he just figures out where the former president lived, which I guess this had to have been before, like any kind of secret service. And then just like burglarizes the former president's home. Um, after the burglary, Carl used the money that he stole from President Taft and bought a yacht and then began luring sailors from New York City bars to kind of attend this fake party that he was having on his yacht, right? Uh, so you kind of see where this is going. When he got the sailors onto the yacht, he would get them even more drunk, and then he would rape them, and then shoot them with President Taft's own gun that he stole. Ah, like, this is, I gosh, man. Like, imagine doing that now, right? Like... Some guy breaks into George W. Bush's home and then steals his gun and then starts murdering people with the president's gun. I don't know. Just God, just the the unique absurdity of this story just really, really soothes my soul. Right. Um, Carl did this to 10 different sailors. And then after that, he ran the yacht aground near Atlantic City and then just decided to move on and do something else. Um, in 1921, Carl then boarded uh, a ship for Africa uh, and sailed to Angola, where he then burned down an entire oil rig just because he could. And then he just raped and killed a 12 year old boy in Africa. Like now he's international. Um, Carl ended up writing uh, about this experience and he said, uh, his brains were coming out of his ears when I left him. He will never be any debtor. So, like, I don't know, man. I, like, I know there's like a saying where you know you you just you did you know you you screwed someone's brains out. Maybe this is where that originated, right? Because Carl literally raped this kid's brains out of his head, and sure. Um, <laughs> Before before he left Africa, Carl then hired uh, a charter boat with six rowers. And while they were out on the river or wherever they were, uh, Carl shot all of them and then fed them one by one to the crocodiles. 
in the river. Like this dude's insane. Um, over the next six years, Carl then uh, assumed some various aliases and he killed four more people and stole various pieces of property around New England. Um, he served some time in prison, but he always found a way to escape every single time. Uh, on August 30th, 1928, Carl was arrested in Baltimore after stealing uh, jewelry and a radio from a Washington, D.C. dentist. And this time, uh, Carl admitted to killing three boys just in 1928 alone. Uh, he also confessed to planning a mass murder in which he was going to poison a city's water supply or alternatively, if he couldn't do that sink a British warship docked in New York Harbor in order to start a war between Britain and the United States. This dude wanted to be the most evil supervillain that ever lived. And he like had some solid plans. I'll give him credit for that. Um, with that confession, along with like his previous criminal record, Carl was given 25 to life back at Leavenworth. Um, once he got there, he then told the warden that he was going to kill the first person who bothered him. And so with that kind of, you can't really say that in prison. So he was sent to uh, solitary confinement, which I don't know, somehow didn't work because on June 20th, 1929, he beat the laundry foreman to death with an iron bar. And at that point, Carl was sentenced to death for that murder. Um, <clears throat> and here's what's crazy. Like, even in 1929, there were human rights activists that showed up at the prison and, like, tried to appeal the conviction or tried to appeal the execution. And, and Carl wasn't having it. Like, Carl actually did not want these people there. Um, he ended up writing, uh, The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. So he's basically like, I wish I could just choke all of you out right now and kill all of you because you're stupid. And I get that. Like, I understand to a degree, like if there's any kind of doubt on a murder conviction, on a death sentence conviction, sure, appeal it. All right. Maybe, maybe that. But when it's like super heinous stuff like this, unapologetic, multiple murders, multiple witnesses, there's no reason to appeal it. There's no, like, kill him immediately, all right? Um, while on death row, Carl confessed to 21 murders, like thousands of other crimes, and over 1,000 rapes on men. Uh, he emphasized, he made it very clear how sorry he was not about any of this. Like, he was 100%, like, was just like, yeah, I did it, feels great, would do it again. Um... On September 5th, 1930, Carl was walked to the gallows at Leavenworth with his final words being, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill a dozen men while you're screwing around. So, I mean, outside of just being an awful person like Carl Pansrum, great story. Love it. Um, our next story here is of Tommy Lynn Sells, who was born on June 28th, 1964 in Oakland, California with his twin sister, Tammy Jean, which is interesting because Tommy Lynn and Tammy Jean, that's, that's Southern. That is some good, just deep South thing, but no, they were born in California, which is interesting. Um, when they were 18 months old, both contracted meningitis. Tommy ended up surviving, but Tammy did not. And, uh, Tammy's death devastated Tommy's mother, who then sent him to live with his aunt in Missouri. Um, 
Tommy eventually then returned back to California. And when he was there, uh, his mother let him hang out with a man named Willis Clark, who um, happily and with his mother's permission started molesting him. Like, what's that conversation like? Right. It's like, hey there, uh, Mrs. Sales, you got a pretty little boy right there. Can't touch his wiener. Well, I guess that, that seems seems fine to me. I don't know. I mean, I can't touch his wiener, but you sure can. Seems seems like a fine thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> it's just this is a weird thing to do. Um, by 1978, Tommy was homeless and hitchhiking across the country, which tends to happen when you're molested a lot as a kid. I think. Um, he was working various jobs. He was drinking heavily. He was committing, you know, petty crimes and just, you know, kind of in and out of prison. Um, this is as like by 14, right? So like he's on the Carl Panzerum path of life. Um, at age 15, he broke into a house and actually found an older gentleman in the process of, um, you know, honking a child's bobo if you will, um, which is insane. What are the odds, right? Tommy Lynn sells grows up being molested. And then he runs away to live this life of crime. And then in the middle of committing a crime, he breaks into a house where this kid is actively being molested. And Tommy was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get justice here. I'm going to be a hero. And he just kills this guy who was molesting this kid. Um, and then he moved on. Like he was never really caught for that. Um, in 1985, he had gotten a job as a carny in Missouri, which makes sense. Carney, serial killer, same thing. Um, and Tommy met a 28 year old Ina court and her four year old son. Uh, Ina apparently just really turned on by carnies in Missouri, uh, invited Tommy back to her house that night where the two made Sweet, passionate, carny love. Just imagine the smell of just cigarettes and ball sweat. Just flapping in the trailer park. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm in a mood today. Uh, Tommy, after, the, after they had done that, uh, Tommy then awoke in the middle of the night to actually find Ina stealing things out of his backpack. Um, which is, you know, look, I'm not going to say that's mistake. Number one, mistake. Number one was having sex with Tommy Lynn cells as a carny. It's gross. Um, mistake. Number two was thinking that she was the actual criminal in this little relationship. And when, uh, Tommy saw her trying to steal things from them, he then beat her to death with her son's baseball bat. And then because you can't murder someone quietly with a baseball bat, all of the ruckus had woken up Ina's four-year-old son and he watched the whole thing happen. And so when Tommy got done, he then beat the son to death with the baseball bat just because you didn't need eyewitnesses for that sort of thing. Um, during a 16-month prison sentence for stealing a truck in Wyoming in 1990, Tommy was actually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, substance abuse disorder, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, I'm not done, uh, psychosis, and schizophrenia, um, which, yeah, makes a lot of sense. But here's the thing, even with that 
CVS receipt of illnesses that clearly require a significant amount of therapy and observation and medication. Authorities just let him go. They, they let him back out into the wild. Uh, and so over the next decade, Tommy went from town to town across the United States, killing people. Um, on December 31st, 1999, Tommy was in Del Rio, Texas, where he slit the throats of 13-year-old Katie Harris and 10-year-old Crystal Searles. Um, although Harris was killed, Searles was able to survive and provide a description to police. Um, he was arrested a few days later and claimed to have killed over 70 people, although forensic scientists don't really believe that. They think he was kind of trying to trick authorities by confessing to things that he hadn't actually done. Um, prosecutors in Illinois wanted to extradite Tommy there for the murder of an entire family in 1987, but Texas, they had caught him, and they weren't about to let some other state uh give a criminal that they caught the death penalty like Texas wanted to kill these people. Um, and so, uh, on April 3rd, 2014, Tommy was given the lethal injection at the Texas state penitentiary. Uh, authorities ended up confirming as many as 22 murders, but believe that they, you know, he could have done way more than that. Um, unfortunately, because Tommy changed his story on several occasions, they were never able to definitively connect him to, um, many more murders other than the 22 that, that they had already gotten. Uh, our last story here is of Keith Hunter Jesperson, who was born in Canada to an unstereotypically violent family. Like I, we all thought that Canadians were all nice. He's like, Hey, welcome to Canada. You know, we were, we we're just all nice. But the Jespersons were like, Hey, won't you leave Canada? going to beat you with a, with a moose head or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, Keith, he eventually grew to be a pretty, pretty rotund, rotund little fella, um, which look, you can't be a fat kid because you get made fun of by all the other kids, um, which still doesn't sound like something Canadians would do. You know, it's just like, you know, we would think it's more something like, hey, you got a, got a couple extra layers of fat there, but you stay pretty warm in the summer. I'm a little jealous myself, eh? You know, uh, just, uh. You know, you're, you're thinking two, two, three steps ahead of us there. You know, Keithy, I just, uh, man, I wish I had your ingenuity. I'm over here shivering my timbers off here. But no, no, the Canadians were just like, hey, you're fat, you little fatty. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know what Canadian voice that is, but I like it. It's fun. Um, so anyway, he didn't have any friends. Because everyone makes fun of him for being fat. And so to combat his loneliness um, and also to avoid his father's violent beatings, which happened often, um, and to find some sense of control, Keith started torturing and killing animals by strangling them to death. Just just really turning into Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Just, you know, eater wouldn't be my friend. You know, whatever. Um I don't, the voice is becoming less and less Canadian as I go along. Um, but those actions, you know, killing animals eventually turned into fantasies of strangling actual people. Um, so the, after, uh, you know, when he was in middle school, I think the Jespersons ended up immigrating to Washington state where Keith graduated high school and then took a job as a truck driver. Uh, he even got married, had three kids, um, 
like life is going really well for him. However, his ultimate goal was to become a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But by 1990, things were not going in that direction. He had been divorced. Uh, he had actually suffered an injury while he was training to become a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And all of that just destroyed his dream. And so with nothing really left to live for, Keith continued working as a truck driver. Um, and he was just kind of content with that. But then he realized that he could pursue his other dream, which was just murdering people. Because, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe in his head, he thought if he could become a police officer, he could like legally kill people. And that could like scratch that little itch that he had developed when he was like strangling squirrels or whatever lives in Canada. Right. Um, because here's the thing, like as a truck driver, his travels allowed him to kill anyone he wanted without being a suspect because he could just show up in a town, kill somebody. And then the next day he's in another state, right? Like he has no ties to the area. Um, and so, and, and look at six foot seven and 240 pounds, like few people were going to stop this guy. Like he was a big dude. Um, and so on January 23rd, uh, Keith met Tanja Bennett at a bar in Portland, Oregon. I don't know what year this was. 1990, I think. On January 23rd, he met uh, Tanja Bennett in a bar in Portland, Oregon, and uh, invited her back to a home that he was renting in the city. Um, when he tried to have sex with her, she refused. And so, you know... Rather than being like, oh, man, I'm sorry, there. I didn't mean to uh, make you uncomfortable. Uh, you know, he had a nice little body there. Thought I was going to maybe stick my wiener in you, but you refused. That's on me. That's my fault there. Uh, why don't you just uh, head on out your way? We'll go our separate ways and uh, just kind of forget this embarrassing episode ever happened there. But no, what he does is he starts beating her. <laughs> and then he like, <clears throat> what's weird is just like he beats her up. But then he gets concerned that she's going to call the police, which, duh, obviously. So then he just strangles her to death. And in order to now have an alibi, because all of these people at the bar saw her leave with him and they're going to suspect him of, of when they eventually find her body. So Keith goes back to the bar and just starts talking with several people. And it's just like, yeah, man, went, 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 went right home. We had a fun time there. She got, she got a great body, got a, got a booty out of this world there, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I don't know. I, I hope, uh, hope I see her again. Hope this turns into something, cause, uh, man, she's, she's a little firecracker there, ain't and you know, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, trying to start a family again. You know, first wife left me, and, you know, just took the kids with her, and then just, just really, really tore me down. But this, this girl, you know got got that spark there and then you know i don't know <laughs> like all these people at the bar just like yeah it's cool dude i don't care but so now he's got an alibi so that when people talk to him he's like no yeah he came back told us this thing is like whatever so um he then went back home disposed of the body and then because he was a truck driver he was on the road the next day and by the time police found the body they had no leads to work with because you know he, jesperson wasn't around and anyone they interviewed, you know, he kind of checked out, right? Um, when news of Bennett's death actually made the news, um, this is also what's crazy. Uh, a woman named Laverne Pavlinak saw it as an opportunity to break up with her abusive boyfriend, John Sosno Sosnovsky. So that is a name. Um, 
And so using details that was provided by the news, Laverne told investigators that John had forced her to help him rape and murder Tonja Bennett. Um, the couple was actually arrested for this murder on March 5th and was actually convicted a year later. A jury found Laverne and John guilty of murdering Tonja Bennett, even though they had absolutely nothing to do with it. John was sentenced to life in prison for murdering someone. And Laverne was actually given 10 years as an accessory, which that's at what kind of realization are you having where your plan has totally backfired? You're just trying to get out of an abusive relationship and now you're in prison for 10 years. And so when she realized that all of this had not gone the way that she thought she would, she confessed that all of it was made up and, and told her, but police didn't believe her. Like they just thought she was trying to get out of prison. So they ignored her. And so they're just in prison now for a murder that they did not commit. Meanwhile, Keith, he spends the next four years uh, meeting several women, most of them sex workers in California, Oregon, and Florida. He strangles each one following some sort of dispute, probably around their lack of desire to have sex with him. And then he would just dispose of the bodies along the way. Um, on multiple occasions, he didn't even know the names of the people that he killed, which made it even more difficult for police to connect him to the murders later on, you know, after he was caught. Spoiler alert, he gets caught. Um, in January 1995, Keith agreed to give Angela Serbrizi uh, a ride from Spokane, Washington to Indiana to see her boyfriend. Uh, a week into the trip, because it really should not take a week to get from Washington to Indiana. You can probably do it in like two or three days. Um, Angela started to get impatient and began nagging Keith to go faster. In response, this is what's insane. This is one of the most insane details of a serial killer story I've ever come across. Um, Keith got so annoyed that he raped and strangled this woman to death before strapping her to the undercarriage of his truck and then grinding her face off with the pavement. <laughs> like he just, and like how, who, do, who doesn't see this? How do you not? Maybe he did it in the middle of the night. I don't know. How do you not see like first, just a, a trail of blood, right? And maybe, I don't know. Maybe it looks like just an oil splatter. Cause you kind of see that on the road sometimes, but like, how do you just not see like the body of a woman just face down, just getting sandpapered off with the highway on the interstate? Cause he's probably going pretty fast, right? I don't know. That's, that's crazy. Um, in 1995, um, by 19 or by March of 1995, Keith had actually had an actual girlfriend, but he decided to murder her because he had come to believe that she was only with him for that fat, hefty truck driver salary that truck drivers are making. And look, truck drivers make pretty decent money, but it's not like life-changing money. Um, so her body was eventually found. Everyone knew that her boyfriend was Keith Jesperson, so police finally had a reason to talk to him. However, um, police uh, Keith refused to cooperate and instead... Uh, tried on two different occasions to kill himself. But when that didn't work, he decided that he would then turn himself in, hoping that he would maybe get a lighter sentence. 
Um, and so while he is in custody for his girlfriend's murder, he began openly telling officers about the other murders that he had committed. Um, he claimed 185, but police only linked him to eight murders uh, in six different states. And then he was eventually convicted of four of them and given four life sentences. Um, uh, one of those murders that he was convicted of uh, was the murder of Tonja Bennett. And once that became official, uh, John and Laverne were released from prison. And you got to imagine Laverne probably pretty scared for her life at the point. Like maybe, I don't know if she got into witness protection or not, but you're already trying to get uh, an abusive guy out of your life. And then you have him convicted for a murder that he didn't commit. So when he gets out, he's probably going to be pretty salty, but I don't know. I don't know how that part of the story ended. All right. So episode 150, um, just some fun stories. I think, you know, look, it's not like an official milestone or anything, but you know, kind of like halfway point between two, two milestones. And so, um, just some fun. Those are some fun stories, right? Just like crazy details. Um, got good amount of police incompetence, which always makes for interesting serial killer stories. But let's recap and see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, Carl Panzerum stole President William Taft's gun and murdered a bunch of people with it and did not feel sorry for it at all, right? Uh, Tommy Lynn Sells um, grew up molested and then got into murder by just randomly walking in on another kid getting molested, which admirable but then i don't know make do something better with your life other than just continuously kill people i don't know uh and then number three keith hunter jesperson killed one of his victims by just grinding her face off the pavement by strapping her to the undercarriage of his truck Next week on Our Weird World, it's the start of a new month, which means it's another weird fun bag episode, uh, another uh, episode number three, and it's three more stories. We're looking at the stories of Lobster Boy, the Rainbow Man, and the indestructible man, Michael Malloy. These are all just like you thought today's stories were crazy. Next week's stories are also equally just weird. They're just weird. And can't wait to uh, share those with you. So uh, looking forward to that next week. And that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening. Keep telling all your friends and keep it weird. One, here comes the two to the three to the four. Everybody drunk out on the dance floor baby girl jiggle like she want more like she a groupie and i ain't even on tour maybe because she heard that i rhyme hardcore or maybe because she heard that i buy out the stores bottom of the ninth 
and uh, <clears throat> got a score. If not, I gotta move on to the next whore. Here comes the three to the two to the one. Homeboy trippin', he don't know I got a gun. When it come to pop, man, we do it for fun. You ain't got one, you better run. Now I'm in the back getting head from my huns. While she going down, I'm breaking down what I'm done. And she's smoking my blunt, saying she ain't having fun. Give it back, now you don't get none. Two. Here comes the three to the four to the five. Now I'm looking at Shorty right in the eyes. Couple seconds passed. Now I'm looking at her thighs while she telling me how much she hate her guy. Said she got a kid, but she got her tubes tied. If you 21, girl, that's all right. I wonder if a shake coming with them fries if so baby can i get them supersized here comes the four to the three to the two she started feeling on my johnson <laughs> right out of the blue girl you super thick so i'm thinking that's cool <laughs> okay, i gotta finish i gotta finish but instead of one lifestyle, I need two. Her eyes got big when she glanced at my jewels. Expression on her face like she ain't got a clue. And she told me she don't run with a crew. You know how I do, but I guess one gotta do. Er body in the club getting tipsy. Er body in the club getting tipsy er body in the club getting tipsy er body in the club getting tipsy